Hi, Brandon. Hi, Chris. How you doing, buddy? <sighs> it's been a week. It's been a week. That's my. That's how. It's been I'm a doing. week, and it's only Wednesday. It's been a week. It's only Wednesday as we record this, and it has been a week. Um, yeah. <laughs> Lemon. It's Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, what are you gonna do, man? My hope is that by the time we release this episode, I am happily employed somewhere, but I am still in the interview process at a couple places, and it is, you know, interviewing. There's yeah. not really anything to mind because it's just exhausting. Hi, I'm tired. Yeah. Like, great episode. <laughs> well done. You guys, are, you guys rule. Thanks for the insight. I'm, I'm sleepy and worn down. Yeah. The podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's part of why I suggested something that we should talk about tonight. I wanted to mix it up. We've gotten pretty serious on the last couple episodes, mm-hmm. which, frankly, I, I find to be a lot of like fun and it's really engaging and interesting to talk about that stuff but you know not not everything is terrible yeah uh, and there's also like lots of stuff that you and I like and enjoy yeah uh and i thought maybe it would be fun to to like dig into something a little more a little more positive and only tangentially related to the programming world yeah if if people like if people sat through the first episode of our podcast, which they really shouldn't have, but they would at least know that we did not start this to hold the tech industry accountable for its fucking crimes, right? Like yeah. this is <laughs> this isn't just calling bullshit as a service was an episode, not a mission statement. So <laughs> uh, it is fun to do, but also like, hey, you know what? Sometimes the cops got to stop and get a donut. Donuts are good. Yeah. In fact, I would say that's probably most of the time based on the donut shops I've seen. Stereotypes exist for a reason sometimes. Oh, oh, oh here I go again. Donuts yeah. are tasty. Hot take. I love Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> okay, wait, but side note, what's your favorite kind of donut? Um, So I'm going to, it's a toss up between just a like real good glazed by a place mm-hmm. that does it well or a blueberry cake. Ooh, that's blueberry cake's good. My like straight up favorite is just a plain like cake donut for a very specific reason. Okay. This is going to like date me and you probably. But when I was a kid, we had Dunkin' Donuts Mm -hmm. and way back then Dunkin' Donuts, their regular cake donuts were weirdly shaped. I don't know if you had Dunkin' Donuts where you grew up Mm, or if you ever encountered this. Okay. Maybe. So, so they were shaped like a Q. Okay, I as as a kid, I didn't understand why this was at all. I just thought they were like the weird looking donuts. And so that's what I always asked for. And then eventually I just ended up liking like I just prefer that donut now. Years later, I learned they don't they haven't done it for like two decades. But I learned that it was like a handle so that you could dip it in coffee. No, and have like a part to hold on to. Wow. Yeah. That's innovation. And the loss yeah. of that should be, they, they should be held accountable. All right. We're back on the job, folks. Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> we're calling you out. Bring back the handle. It's not even Dunkin' Donuts anymore. It's Dunkin' because yeah. they've diversified. It's just sad. Yeah. I'm it's happy about it's it. primarily, it's primarily a latte shop at this point that Gross. happens to have some stale donuts in the back. Yeah. They are stale. Dunkin' Donuts sucks. Now. Yeah, it does. Oh, well, we got Round Rock Donuts out here in Austin, and if uh, those aren't the base, best donuts I ever tasted, I, I don't know what are. They are very good. All right, enough about donuts. Let's talk about games, baby. Yeah, like the, the donut's perfect companion. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think you and I have very different relationships to games. By games, I mean like video games, but it could also be real-life games, like board games or... I don't know, D&D or whatever else. Duck, duck, um, goose. Duck, duck, goose, sure. Yeah. Games, I love games. Games, like, mean a lot to me. Um, I enjoy them from an entertainment standpoint, but I also just find them to be, I don't know, like, a deeply engaging medium for all sorts of things. Um, I like, like, storytelling in games. I like, like, systems-type stuff in games. Uh, I think they're interesting to think about. I also think they're a lot of fun to play, but there's one game in particular that I've, I've been like wanting to talk about a little bit, uh, ever since I was at EmberConf and Yehuda and Tom gave their keynote and Tom joked that 
instead of preparing for instead of preparing the slides for the keynote, Yehuda was busy like building a Magic the Gathering card search app. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm guessing is not a joke. I'm guessing is literally true. Yeah, yeah. I know what it is. That I talked to Yehuda afterwards about Magic. And yeah, we, we both. Magic the Gathering is a fucking great game. I started, I like got pulled into it when I was in fifth grade. And I loved it then. And like throughout my life, I have like gone back and played Magic. Like I played Magic as an adult. I played it in like middle school. I played it in elementary school. And each time I have like gone back to this like brilliantly designed game, I have learned something new and interesting, and I just find it to be fascinating. So first off, have you ever played Magic the Gathering? I'm going to explain why not later. So I want to hear your okay. story, because my, ex- my explanation as to why not has its own sad story associated with it. So no, oh, cool. never. Okay. Well, Mag- so Magic the Gathering is a card game. It's like 1v1 mostly. It's like uh, you have a deck. You're, you have like spells and creatures and there's this fantasy element to it. Um, I think some people get really into that. As far as I'm concerned, you could basically like erase all of the, the spells and, and like lore around it if you really wanted. Because like at its core, it's this very interesting numbers game. It's like a combination of like chess and poker is how people describe it a lot of times. It is weirdly very similar to programming in a lot of ways. Like there is a stack in magic. Like if you're trying to figure out, like if people do a bunch of things and you need to like figure out how the sequence of them should unfold. It's literally like a stack in programming. Like it's first in last out. You like unwind the stack the way you would a computer programming stack People have, like, used the rules of the game to build, like, a Turing-complete computer. Uh, like, it is, it is a, it's a rich vein. But it also has, like, a bunch of really interesting stuff in terms of, like, thinking strategically and bluffing and reading people. And it also is this kind of miraculous uh, example of, I guess, just, like, product design. I, I read an interview with the, the lead designer of R or like the head of R and D for Magic, his name is Mark Rosewater. Just talking about how the average lifetime, I guess the average like customer lifetime for a person who picks up Magic, who just tries it, is was something like thirteen years. So like like on average, if a person like got sucked into Magic and just tried it, an average person would would like engage with that game for thirteen years. <laughs> The heroin dealers are like, ah, oh, god damn it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no joke. Yeah, it's it's just, it's this really awesome thing. And, you know, as a kid, it just kind of like, I thought it was interesting. It kind of, it, it, I think it's what sparked my interest about like thinking about games in general, but also just like looking at things from kind of a more systematic level versus like playing Mario and just mashing buttons. Uh, it was the first time that I had been like, oh man, if you if you want to be good at this thing that is also at least mildly competitive because to play it, you have to like play against someone else. You're going to have to like think a lot harder than you do when you're playing Mario and you're going to have to like do math and, and like bluff and plan and uh, have restraint if, if you like want to win. And every time I've gone back to it, I basically like learned much more nuanced and like multifaceted versions of that same lesson. And I find it like very rewarding every time. Do you still play? No, not, not only because I don't know anyone who plays and I don't want to like walk into a random game shop and play with like a bunch of 12 year old nerds. So you were going to say, it's not what I'm about. And I don't have access to the internet wherein I might find these other players. Well, I mean, you can find, but like, you can find them, but not necessarily where you live. Yeah. You know, like there are game stores, but if you go to game stores, you're, you're likely like, it's a crapshoot in terms of who's going to be there. If I like knew, if I had friends who played and they were like, Hey, let's just do this. I would, I would, I would be so down. But you want to Colorado plays magic and knows me. I was going to say my understanding of how friendships form is exactly the opposite of what you're describing to me. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. If you were to open uh, you yourself know, to new right. experiences, Chris. But yeah, so so let's say let's say you know for sake of argument though, like uh, you know you don't play anymore because you don't have easy access to people that you know that play also. So, but it was something that clearly you enjoyed a lot, and it it I'm, I'm curious about the impact it had in your life because you know you talked about it you talk about it in these sort of almost reverential terms, like that it had yeah. it had a special place for you. It did, yeah, for a lot of reasons that they're like. And some reasons because I was just a nerdy kid and it gave me like a thing to kind of like focus all of my smart nerd kid energies into that I hadn't really had prior to that. And it, and it kind of introduced me to a group of friends that I might not have met otherwise. Um, but then later on, it I found that it, it scratched an itch that not many other things have. I played it some when I was in grad school. In which case, it was just a very welcome respite from the just, like, never-ending, soul-crushing workload of, of grad school. In, like, middle school slash high school, I, I played, and then it was just much more like uh It was very similar to, like, being on the debate team. It, it was a very similar set of, like... uh A very similar appeal, I guess. It was... A, it was I got really into the strategy of it at that point. And it, but like I think one of the things that mattered the most to me was it 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 continually taught me a lesson about like tying my sense of value to silly things because a, th- a thing that happens like a really interesting thing about magic is that it involves literally sitting across the table from another person face to face and doing a thing where one person like categorically beats the other. And that can bring out a lot of weird things in people. Uh, like the notion of, of like, I had, like, it's not always the case, but like where it is possible that you could just like look at the table and go like, I, it is, I can prove empirically that I have just outsmarted you. And as a result, like you, you like you lose that. And to be clear, like, that's not, that's not like the thing I was doing, but that is the thing that I saw wreck people. Like people would get so angry when they lost, and I think they would get probably get less angry if they lost in a different setting. But the fact that they lost literally three and a half feet in front of the person who beat them, and they had to just like sit there and deal with it, and and if they like tied, you know, the other part of it is like magic is this game mostly not now. I think it's a lot more mainstream now, but you know, a lot of nerds play this game and. Like a lot of like nerdy people derive a lot of value from the notion that they are smart and losing in a game in like a battle of wits that happens to use cards to kind of like facilitate that makes them feel not smart. And in a lot of cases, I saw people just melt down. They're like, <laughs> I, I am the this is impossible. I'm the Bobby fucking Fisher of yeah, MTG. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And so and it was a thing that like I always it always repulsed me like i I, it made me deeply uncomfortable and it kind of taught me a very valuable lesson about like learning like placing the the thing that you let define like your sense of value or identity like internally versus externally it was just this very this very like cut and dry instance of seeing like what it looks like when people have that derived externally uh it's just like brought into like stark stark contrast uh and it was very it was very interesting the other thing that was like super fun about it was one of the other parts of magic um is trading like trading cards because that shit's expensive <laughs> like that's another thing about it that game oh my god the amount of money you can spend on like pieces of cardboard is staggering um there's there is a whole economy around around magic cards and like you can track the prices there are people who get into magic solely for like making money. They don't play it. They just like speculate on the market and like buy and sell. So like I also got to the point where sometimes I would just go to tournaments and not play, but I would just like trade and find like I would, I would like pick like a crappy card I didn't like and make it a point to spend like the whole day. Like I'm going to I'm going to see how much money I can turn this one card that I don't want into by just like haggling and hustling my way from like person to person to person and like i'm gonna trade this for that and then i'm gonna find another person who wants this thing and then i'm gonna like continue haggling and 
it's just a lot of fun. Like it, it is a skill that is continuing to serve you well. And it like, you have to do a lot of bluffing uh, and like sometimes play mind games on people. And it's just fun. So did it put you in a category of people? Like, did you find belonging in it or was it just an activity? When I was younger, it definitely did. It absolutely gave me like a strong sense of belonging with a set of a set of people that I don't think I would have met otherwise. It like happened to be around a time when um, my family was selling our house, uh, which meant two things. One, it meant that we were like literally in the act of selling our house, which meant on weekends we had to get out of the house um, while people came and looked at it, which was like a weird, you know, for for like what eighth grade me was just kind of a weird sensation. And so like my parents would just be like, oh, go to the comic store and play magic. Like go, you know, hang out there all Saturday. It works out. Uh, you get to do a thing you like and we can show the house. But the other part was uh, where I grew up, the the gap between eighth and ninth grade was when you change schools. Yeah, to junior high school. Yeah, yeah. And because of where we moved, I had to go. Like I, I grew up in a, a pretty big suburb that had like I don't know ten middle schools and then like five or six high schools. So like. There's all that there's like these feeder networks of like these elementary schools feed into this middle school feeds into this high school. And we moved to a place that put me in a different network. So in eighth grade, which is already like a you know rough time going into high school, freshman year of high school, we moved to a different area where I all of the people that I had literally grown up with my entire life and gone through elementary and middle school with all went off to high school together and I went to a different high school with no one that I knew. Very awkward 14 year old or however old you are when you're in ninth grade. And so like having a a game to play that, that actually still connected me to a lot of those people that I was no longer in school with meant a great deal to me. Uh, It kind of gave us a common thing to like bond over, even though we didn't have like the shared experience of going to school together. So that's a lot of lessons that you've taken out of that, like the trading aspect of it, the uh, the sort of grouping aspect of it, that it's something to bond over, the uh, taking wins and losses so seriously and personally uh, that even in athletics, you may not get that up close and impersonal like feeling uh, of losing directly, you know, directly within literal striking distance of the person that that defeated you, you know, or vice versa. Uh, and how that how that sort of makes you feel and having to sort of process that without without like succumbing to the lizard brain portion of, of of how you might react in either one of those scenarios. And those are all super valuable. I totally get it. That's neat. And it's, a you know, and it's a fun activity. All of those things. Yeah, I did not do that. Uh, I was aware of the magic card phenomenon uh, when I was in, you know, ninth, 10th, 11th grade. Do you know, like one of the metaphors I use in life a lot is this feeling that you're hanging on the edge of a cliff by your fingertips. Like, I think most people know this feeling of just barely holding on to something and uh, being absolutely terrified to let go, not being able to kind of see below beneath what's beneath your feet. And then something forces you to let go and you realize it was only a couple of inches drop. Like that feeling of like, wait a minute, I was terrified all this time and holding on so tightly. And when I let go, there was nothing like no, nothing to be afraid of. Like it's not, there was no drop. There was no drama. Uh, and, and I wasted all that energy. That was my social standing in high school. In high school, there, there were tables. Uh, my family moved to Utah. I'll spare you most of the details. I have one of those like fun, tragic backstories. Um, but in high school, once I moved to Utah, I didn't know anybody, new school, whatever. There were lunch tables as social groupings. And the social pecking order was established at lunch tables. Lunch table, you know, A, B, C, D, whatever. Like, they weren't literally assigned. You just went to the same lunch table every day. And my lunch table was the second lowest rung on the social Mm -hmm. ladder. They were like the honor student kids that played in jazz band, you know, like, and the table literally next to our table was the magic card (sighs) kids. And I knew they were beneath (laughs) me. And I'm like, 
I cannot afford to drop one rung on this social ladder. Not playing magic cards is all I have. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so it's, it was extremely important to my personal identity that I not participate this in this is, activity. This like, is very insightful into both of our, our personalities, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when we, when we get more into games, like games were not welcome in my home. My dad really thought I should have a job by the time I was like 10. Like games and frivolous, you know, waste mm-hmm. of time type stuff was very sh- a very shameful use of time in my home growing up that literally my dad the only game my dad ever played with me was he was trying to teach me blackjack <laughs> so that he could educate me on the fact that you can't beat the you oh, can't beat the house wow. so it, and and so the lesson the lesson contained in there was be the house like you know if you're going to if you're going to get involved in gambling be the casino and i was like thanks dad i'm fucking 11 <laughs> Which you should definitely hit on. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, yeah, that uh, that's tragic. Is this does this is he, <laughs> it is it is only just a thin <laughs> slice of the beautiful tapestry of tragedy. <laughs> um, so my relationship to gaming is very strange, and it, it was very it was formed. Um, so it was formed later, primarily later mm-hmm. in life. Uh, other than the fact that we were permitted to have a Nintendo so long as we didn't hook it up to the main TV, because everybody knows Nintendos are Japanese like spy devices for our <laughs> television sets. So my relationship to gaming is primarily centered around video games. Uh, and, and, and I've held a fascination with video games, I'm guessing, since before I could talk. So that's sort of that was my entry. So like physical card games. I collected baseball cards for a while and traded those. So that's my relationship to trading stuff. I had, you know, baseball cards until I was too old, quote unquote, for baseball cards when I was like 12 and had to get rid of them all. Uh, I had comic books until I was 13. And then I was too old for comic books and had to give them all away. So like I was, this was like, a, you know, it was, I was supposed to be like moving into adulthood. And so anything that I did that involved something that was like a childlike activity was like not something that was to be done in the open. It was like secret and shameful. So I think that moved me into like PC gaming uh, as soon as I was able to like acquire my own PC. So, you know, I love games. I think they're fun. I just don't know like how late in life a person can pick something like magic cards up. And it still even makes my like, I just like get like defensive about it when I think about it. Like, oh, I wouldn't do that. That's not something I would do. It's like, no. And it's weird when I think about you doing, I'm like, oh, that's cool. You do you. But if it was me, I'd be like, Brandon, come on. (laughs) Don't be like that. Don't be that guy. Don't touch that thing. Yeah. How weird. Our brains are so weird, man. So anyway, that's, that's, that's sort of like, uh, my, my relationship to magic was literally just in relation to social standing. That's all I knew about it. Hmm. That's really interesting. So then, so what did, what did, what did, uh, PC gaming in secret then look like? So, you know, like, I, I mean, I, I loved playing like console games and stuff growing up. Uh, I had, you know, I got, when I was eight, I, I did get a Nintendo and hooked it up to the black and white TV that I was allowed to use. And that was fun. And I really obviously got super into it. And uh, I was obsessed with the idea of video games. Well, I really fought really hard to like lobby for a computer. Like, hey, I'm going to use it for homework and blah, blah, blah. And and one Christmas, my dad was like, look, we have this broken old computer that my work nerd went like he owned a company. And he's like, my nerd at work fixed this computer. You can have it. And I was like, oh, cool. So it was like a even then, like as low end a PC as you could possibly exist with. Uh, it barely ran Windows 3.1. It was a 486. And I just dove so like headfirst into anything you could do for free with a PC. Like and back in those days, uh, the, what you could do for free with a PC was go to the mall, go to like software, mm-hmm. et cetera, and pick up all of the like Doom demo discs and all the yeah. shareware stuff. And for like essentially the cost of a floppy disk or even like no cost, you could just. So I had like racks of 1.44 meg floppies full of shareware. I had every shareware I could get from somebody. And so, like, I had the first level of every video game uh, basically, like, memorized. I knew, like, I played the shit out of the first three levels of Doom. I played, like, the one or two maps you, you could play on Warcraft. So, I mean, I was, like, super into any video game you could play for free on a floppy disk because I also couldn't mm-hmm. afford a CD-ROM. 
and I couldn't spend $160 on four more megs of RAM, <laughs> right? Does your computer have a turbo Who's button? F- nice. Oh, it sure did. It was a Packard Bell. Packard Bell with the turbo button. I mean, you wouldn't want to press it because your games yeah. wouldn't work anymore. So you had to leave turbo on, except for on one game, Rise of the Robots, which was like a super shitty fighting game that moved too fast. And so I had to hit the turbo button. To cut it <laughs> I, re- I remember playing everything that I could get my hands on. Um, so I would break my computer and have to reformat it uh, about every six months or so. Uh, I needed to reformat my hard drive. Uh, I was I became deeply familiar with like the DOS prompt and autoexec.bat and IRQ settings and uh, everything a person needed to do to be able to just uh, it w- and it was all in the service of playing video games. So so much of like at that point like what social circle I did have kind of centered around uh, the like computer geekery and video games playing gaming on computers and any money that I could save up was invested. I finally, when I was like 16 or 17, I'd saved up enough money. I finally, uh, like could like buy a new motherboard that could run a Pentium, uh, Pentium processor and got a graphics card and a, you know, CD-ROM and all that stuff. So anyway, it was, uh, all of my, all of my focus went into like nerdy individual computer shit. Cause my parents couldn't do anything about that. So that was, that was like my space and there wasn't much to do socially with computers at the time either. Right. They didn't talk to each other yet other than I would periodically dial into a BBS, but that wasn't, that was more out of curiosity and not a social outlet. So this wasn't, computers weren't really a social outlet. There wasn't any sort of belonging to them other than I had a couple of nerdy friends that were also into computers and that was our, you know, we would geek out about stuff and read PC magazines and get the demo desk that came with those and install a bunch of shit. And I just like, I seriously, I, I mean, I probably played the first level of a thousand yeah. games. I remember those shareware CDs. You get them in magazines too. And it would just be like, Oh yep. shit. There's the first level of 300 games on this disc. If I just buy this magazine for $7, I'll be set for a month or two. Yep. I remember the one that, the one that like really broke me, was Interstate 76 because it had like fully 3D rendered everything and it was super highly stylized. And even today, I think it holds up just for the style of it. I wanted to be able to play that game so badly, but it ran at about a half a frame a second. So like it ran in negative frames per second, like seconds per frame. And I I just wanted this thing to work so badly. Like it it just like haunted me until like, I, I think I spent the next year saving up money to buy a computer that could run it and then I didn't have any money left over for the software, but it was fine. There were more demos to download by then. So I, it's, this one's harder for me to justify or explain because there's no like tragic backstory associated with it. I just hate them. And, and I wanted to explore this with you because like board games are almost like an like a load bearing piece of the programmer identity puzzle. I don't like like at my previous job there was like board game friday where most of the people got together and played board games and they had a stack of board games and i recognize this is like an emerging emerging like subculture of indie board game uh creators and game design being like a thing a person does as a hobby and uh and people and it's a thing that people get into and talk about like new games with different rules and fun mechanics and play this you know this way or this this way i have not been able to to find myself enjoying one like minute of any of those games. I just really struggle to uh, find any enjoyment in those. There's a category of games I do like. I like the twitchy Mario stuff and I like party games like uh, there. You don't know. Jack has these Jackbox things for the Apple TV that are really fun to do. Any of them are fun. Some of them are not as fun, but like, you know, that's just a function of quality game design. So like, social interaction type games, but like deep rules-based, math-based, objectives-based games just drive me up the wall. Risk, you know how Risk would be like the lightest version of that type of game because it like is on the border between like, we're playing Monopoly. You know, that it's like the candy land of, <laughs> you know, complex board games. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like a very simple rule set, but it takes 16 hours to finish a game. Yeah. Yeah. 
Meanwhile, Candyland is a thing that I probably still play about weekly with my six-year-old who thinks it's the greatest, and I wish that she didn't know yeah. this existed. Uh, playing playing Candyland as an adult with like a, a kid relative, mm-hmm. like I hadn't played it in 25 years. And I was like, oh, yeah, Candyland, what are, what are the rules for this? And then I like looked, and I was like, yeah. there are no rules. This this. This actually, there are no I don't rules. even you think draw this qualifies a as a game. All you do is just move to the color on the card. You have no choice yep. at all. It's actually like, you could probably like look at the cards in the deck and just like mathematically determine who wins right there. Yep. It's like tic-tac-toe. It is a mathematically solvable game oh, that, that requ- requires no interactivity to yeah. uh, self-play. Yeah, it is a, it is yeah, a torture device rough. disguised as a game. Um, so, but all these other games, which I recognize to be games with mechanics and with with group dynamics, and uh, I would say the exception to that would be I played like Werewolf with people, and that's ostensibly like it's like on the border between one of those types of games and a party game. I view it, you know, more yeah. as like a party game. I found that to be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. So, what is where is Werewolf like a like D and D kind of thing, or is it something else? No, it's like a, do you know, it's a very famous thing where you like people, like everybody claims to be a villager, but one of the people is actually a werewolf. Okay. Yeah. So it's something you don't need. You don't need anything other than a moderator to play. So I'm, I'm, I'm picking up on, on a a theme here that I I think I relate to because I I have a a different, but also weird relationship to board games. And the thing I'm noticing is that the few games that you're saying that you do like are all like they are, I think kind of more um, they're less intense overall and just in terms of the actual gameplay, but they also like you listed like some trivia games, a thing that runs on your Apple TV and werewolf, which as far as I can tell at most might involve like some cards, but even then it's just like a lot of interaction, which is to say that they all have very minimal or automated setup. Uh, and a thing about like a lot of the indie board games is that like, holy shit, the amount of setup involved is staggering. Yeah. Setup and tracking is like, my yeah. And yeah. So I, I have, I have a, my relationship to those is that in theory, I find them very interesting. Like I, I keep, they're like a thing I always want to try and then like get more involved in. Because it like it's it's neat on some level that the fact that like someone like made this very tactile version of of a game that has like the level of of depth and the the interactivity of all of its systems that like a video game has, um, which is what a lot of these mm-hmm. games are kind of like moving more and more towards. Yeah, yeah, like Pac Man, uh, the board not game, not quite, but <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Which I did it's have super, and did love. It's super interesting, but then like in practice. Like I've I've definitely bought a couple of those games and been like, all right, we're gonna do this, we're gonna play this. And then like six hours later, you're two hours into the game because it took you four hours to like punch out all the little pieces and figure out what the hell goes where <laughs> and set everything up and start to figure out what the what the rules are and how you start playing or anything. And it's like you're exhausted and you're tired of reading like the tiny instruction book font and then it's just like, oh god! If this were if this were a video game, we would have been playing for six hours. But instead, we played for two hours, and they weren't even a good two hours because by the time we got to it, our brains are all fried. But yeah. like, I find the idea so so compelling. Like, I think that's the other reason that like magic is a thing that stuck with me is because it it is also very easy to play in terms of like there is mm-hmm. no setup. Like, there's a deck of cards, and the other person has a deck of cards, and you're done. And I'm guessing the rule sets aren't ridiculous. It's the it's like one of those easy to learn how to master uh, type things. Magic's rules are pretty crazy. It's got a lot okay. going on. <laughs> um, but there is like a there's like a kind of like fundamental level that's like relatively straightforward, and then it just it goes deep, it goes very very deep if you want. But yeah, like but there's there's so little setup. Uh, it's kind of elegant in the sense that you can. There are so many magic cards. There's thousands and thousands of magic cards and there, you know, like all sorts of crazy interactions between them. So there's a lot of depth there, but the actual process of like physically playing the game is still 
like incredibly simple. And I, I definitely get bogged down by like the 10 pound board game box of just like, a, I don't know. I don't even know how, how you can have that many pieces for a game. But like I have one in my closet right now that I can't even remember the name of that I bought aspirationally. And it's like, let's call it the cones yeah, of Dunshire. Basically, Yeah, it's probably that. Like the cones of Dunshire is probably based on this Kickstarter game that I bought and I've never played. My wife and I like cracked it open, looked at it, and we're, it was like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Like, like we like opened, <laughs> opened it up, and there was just this like golden aura. And then, but like it's it's unknowable. Like the contents of that of that board game are actually just like truly unknowable. So this is like kind of ex- helping explain the answer to a question that I've had in my head for literally a number of years since I started. I moved into programmer culture later in life, right? I was in my 30s before I started getting into like what programmers do. And it was shocking to me that programmers did anything recreationally other than program because I was a brand new programmer. And I'm like, why are you doing anything that's not programming? Programming is so fun. Uh, learning about programming is fun. Why would you read any books that aren't programming books? Why would you play any games that aren't just you programming. And, um, but it planted the seed of the question that I will channel my friend Stanley and ask like, why are programmers so horned for board games? Like I went to these meetups and, and every time I went to programmer meetups, board games were a companion in, in much the way that, you know, like, I don't know if you go to, if, if you get groups of people together, they're, they're, preferred activities spontaneously emerge and getting, and most of, most of the time it's alcohol related. And when you get programmers together, alcohol is incidental, but what must be there are board games. So, I mean, I'm not qualified really to guess cause I, I don't think I'm one of those people, but if I had to guess, I, I feel like it's a combination of the, the stuff I was just saying where like the design and all the mechanics and everything of it appeal to me in the same way that, like in a way that's very similar to things that I like about programming. I'm like seeing like how the system works and how the pieces fit together and then kind of like manipulating that system to win the game is really fun. That's the thing that seems like programmers would get into. But it also has the the other the other aspect of it is that it's like it's physical. It has this tangible experiential aspect to it that, you know, if you are in like programmer mode all day like you're typing on a computer and so to like put all that down and just like physically manipulate all of the stuff and like talk to people face to face but like have a thing that still kind of engages that programmer part of your brain the same part that you would probably use if you were playing video games but that has you do it in person with like physical stuff and you know real people and in a group yeah yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I totally see the appeal. I totally see it because like it actually kind of explains why some of the parts of programming that other people seem to engage with the best are the pine, the, the parts that I find least appealing, like the actual puzzle yeah. solving aspects of it. I'm looking for the solution, whereas a lot of people that are attracted to programming, they don't do what I do when I'm playing Zelda Breath of the Wild and immediately skip to the game facts so that you can <laughs> blast through this shrine so that I can get back to the questing part. My whole point of playing Zelda is to like the sensation of climbing up a mountain and then like gliding to the next objective and, and like planting yeah. flags, you know, like, uh, yeah, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. I love that aspect of it. And I can't stand the part where it's like, I have a brain teaser for you. <laughs> like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> I have game facts. Well, although, so that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> okay. Never, never mind. Okay. So you, okay. So you like the exploring part. But you will jump to the game facts mm-hmm. when it comes time to, like, move the story forward or, or whatever. When it's like you're at this juncture yeah, where you have the, to beat this thing to move on. At the very first sign of an obstacle, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm going to, like, I'm going, like, because you get unlimited yeah. lifelines yeah. In, in this game. Like, so I'm going to exercise the lifeline at the first sign of trouble. So if it's obvious, I'll be like, oh, that was fun, you know, a little bit of a brain teaser. But as soon as it is, like the game is like, Ooh, not quite. I'm like, you know, nope. Thanks. Out. I'm out. I'm out. Nope. Uh, nope. Just give me, give me, give me the is, stone. This is extremely, G- give me if the anyone fucking ever orb. wanted to know what it's like to program with Brandon, he literally just described. <laughs> give me the goddamn orb. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you have you have exhausted my patience. It's been twelve <laughs> seconds, sir. Yes, I know. Yeah, you, you definitely do not derive any joy in the journey uh, when it comes to that kind of problem. No. But but like other parts of the journey, I enjoy a great deal, and so like, um, and so I think, and board games are all like all the puzzly journey and none of the destination, and so the only way I can enjoy them is as a vehicle for the social inter- interaction that it engenders, and so the ones that have a real hard tilt away from rules and mechanics towards social yeah. interaction, I'm going yeah. to enjoy more. You also, okay, so this this makes me realize that you also probably missed out on a really wonderful part of my childhood, and I think probably a lot of people who grew up with both siblings and video games, uh, which is playing video games as a group, but like pair video gaming. So for instance, uh, when I played Ocarina of Time uh, back on N64, I like started playing it. I was the one that was in the Zelda, but my brother and sister, my younger brother and sister were there and it was over summer vacation and we were all just like stuck at home. My both, both my parents were at work and we were all young enough that like we didn't have jobs or anything. I think I was like 12 or 13. And so we would get up and I would turn on the N64 and start playing Ocarina of Time and my brother and sister would come out and just co-pilot the whole game. So, like, I would have the controller because they didn't really want to play it, but they would sit there and watch and, like, be like, hey, what about that? Or, like, oh, man, we got to, like, fix this puzzle. Or, like, hey, what if you try this thing? And, and, like, looking back, it's, like, it's just straight up pair programming. Like, they were, like, they were, like, navigating. Yes. And then, like, fast forward to college or, you know, even, like, high school, like, I found horror games really interesting, but, like, too intense to play myself. So, like, I would happily watch someone else play them and, like, try and help them figure out the puzzles. But, like, I would never sit down and play, like, Silent Hill on my own. But I would kill to watch someone else play Silent Hill and let me, like, navigate with them. And it, it never dawned on, on me until just now that, like, that is literally the exact same thing as pair programming. And that, like, you would probably be a very good video game co-pilot in the same way that you are a very good I pair. I would. I would really actually in retrospect, like, so uh, I didn't play Ocarina of Time until it came out on the 3DS and I gave up on the water yeah. temple. I was like, you know what? I don't, I don't need this in my life, but I know that if I had been with another person and we've been yeah. talking through it, they'd be like, oh no, no, you need to go lower that again. Like you didn't, you know, like that would have been like, that would have changed the experience from being a, a trial of my like now exhausted patients to a very enjoyable co-piloting activity. Like, I guess I'm just not like, I, it's not that I hate solving puzzles. It's that I don't like uh, solving puzzles yeah. alone and or yeah. competitively. Yeah. I think, hmm. I think you'd be very good at that. Yeah. I, I, so like, that's why these games that are like social outlet type things mm-hmm. are more enjoyable for me where it's like a team thing. People told me, Oh, pandemic is kind of like that. And it kind of was, I think my experience with it was broken just because, we played it wrong and it was that we'd accidentally basically set the difficulty to impossible by like tweaking the rules, like one tick. And so I was like, well, this isn't any fun. You can't win. But, uh, but the cooperative aspect of it where you're like, kind of like, no, 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 do it this way, do that way. Like that. I do think I would enjoy. Well, I mean, so yeah, if anybody can ever corner me into a room and then like shove a game piece into my hand, uh, then, then have at it. You knave. You, but you also play, you play video games now. I mean, you played Breath of the Wild a lot. And you played Spider-Man. Okay, I did. So, I, yeah, I want to I want to basically talk, like, I, maybe the last thing is about gaming and aging. And your life situation changes. So, I get to play approximately one game a year now. I don't know if you know this. I've been unemployed for two months. And I, so, on day one of, like, quote-unquote fun employment... I was like, oh, you know what I'm going to get around to? I'm going to plug in my PS4 and just like play the shit out of that. Yesterday was my eight week anniversary of uh, being unemployed. I have yet to plug in my PS4. So like in theory and as an identity, I still identify as a gamer. Like I play games. I'm a gamer. I love games, you know. Uh, Do you though? Because when you have the opportunity to play them, you do not do that. You do other things. Is that true? And that's like I play video games a lot and i feel like where i define myself in your shoes 
the last thing I would do is play video games. It feels it feels like a tremendous misuse yeah, yeah, of time. Yeah, like I, I like I, the second you said that, I just immediately conjured this like movie scene in my head of of like this this movie scene actually exists. It's in Gone Girl. Uh, like <laughs> there's, there's like a flashback where Ben Affleck is unemployed and his wife comes home and he's like playing Call of Duty on the couch. And she's like, why haven't you found a job? And it's just like, nope, definitely, absolutely not going to do that ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you definitely don't want to be that person. But, like, even when, like, I had promised that I wasn't even going to look for four weeks. Like, I wasn't going to do anything. What I did do, so my gaming habits have morphed to, like, I derive similar enjoyment. Like you said, I love the co-piloting thing. You know who will let you be the co-pilot on video games as somebody else plays them? The entire internet. So like I got super into like speed runs as like a relaxing way to unwind. Um, I love watching video game history. I have like a smattering of channels I think have really high quality video game content and aren't run by misogynistic douchebags, which is a surprisingly high overlap with gaming media. So like there's this guy that does a thing called uh, NES Works and Game Boy Works, and it's really fun, super polished uh, content about like game by game as they were released history of different games. And it's fun to watch these things play through, not just for nostalgia, but like as like nostalgia plus journalism plus, you know, sort of uh, like modern day critique of things that are old. Uh, It's kind of fun. So like media consumption is lower intensity than trying to play a video game. And so like that is that's where my head is at right now. That's the level of intensity I can deal with. The other thing I do with games is my kids love, like, I think the Nintendo Switch is just the greatest thing ever. In theory, it wasn't that exciting. And in practice, it's the greatest goddamn thing. So, like, if you're a parent with kids, like, yesterday I decided, you know what? We're going to buy Mario Tennis Aces because it's yet another game that can play four players. And my kids at six and ten are the right age to kind of get into something like that. And sure enough, they're like, let's play mom, dad. And so it's a thing all four of us can do. We only have like, we bought the two controllers. So we have like, when we can turn them into four controllers, it's super easy to get set up. My six-year-old can play. So Mario Kart and Mario Tennis and uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of other like four player games, uh, Smash. Uh, They don't like that as much. But like these games are just designed to be like, hey, why why don't you all get together and just do something fun that your like youngest kid will beg you to do that the parents are totally fine doing uh the middle kids can be good at so it's like so perfect for like this family and i really enjoy what games have morphed into in that respect other than the fact that like my 10 year old basically has like claw hands from playing <laughs> Fortnite. <laughs> it's fine man yeah fortnite's a fortnite's a trip it's a different deal. Uh, but you know what? I totally encourage it because last year, you know, a, a year ago, just over a year ago, he was struggling to sort of form friendships at school because of like, he's super into stuff that older kids are into and they were into stuff kids their age were into. And then Fortnite happened and they're all into the same shit. And so he's on there like audio chatting, like, what's up? It's me. Look, you know, they're just shooting each other in the face. And I know that some parents will think that I'm like the you know worst parent in the world for like encouraging my 10 year old to like snipe or rifle other people in the face. But it's just like, you know what, as, as a social outlet, I'm totally yeah. fine with it as interspersed with actual face to face. That's the, that's the thing I hear every time anyone, any adult talks about the phenomenon that is Fortnite is the fact that all of these kids who play it, like, don't even play it that much like they like or they, they do but it's like it's basically like a hangout spot it just so yeah. happens to have a video it's like game. diablo 2 was i don't know if you were one of the diablo 2 people but all my friends were on diablo 2 and i tried to jump i really tried i really tried to get into it with them uh i just was like so is there another game mechanic besides clicky 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 and they're like no this is it and i was like i do not like that uh, but it was where they would hang out and chat and I was like, if I wanted to hang out with my friends, that's where they'd be. So like, mm-hmm, seems fine to me. I mean, it didn't break me. Diablo 2 didn't turn me into a Satan worshiper. That was a completely different set of events. <laughs> that was Sonic. My, 
<laughs> it was oddly it was Shadow the Hedgehog that got that introduced me to the cult. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean that's similar. Like I don't know, games are cool. Like that's that's like the same thing that happened to me. It was it like the game itself was was great, but it also was this kind of medium by which I could like form friendships and learn new things, and you know have like different experiences I wouldn't have otherwise. And it just so happened that there was like a game you were playing at the same time, but. I don't know. It's cool. Uh, it's weird that we, a lot of us, like, lose that as adults. Like, you always hear people talk about how it's so hard to make friends as an adult. And it's like, like you pointed out earlier, like, why don't you, if you, you know, want to play that game so much, why don't you go play it? And I'm like, because it's hard. And, like, I don't know who's there. It's scary. And it's scary. And it's like, well, I don't, you know. I don't necessarily trust the kind of people that would reach out and be like, Hey, who else is yeah. playing this thing locally? And you're like, uh, it might select for a group of people you don't necessarily want to yeah. hang out with. You don't know. There's, there's a reason that Craigslist isn't the world's leading da- dating yeah. site that we met on Craigslist is not a great investment. There's also just um, like time, you know, like, like I mentioned as a kid spending the entire Saturday, like my parents would drop me off. If it, if it was up to me, they would drop me off when the place opened and pick me up when it closed because I could do, there was stuff I could do there all day long. There would be like this rotating yeah. cast of friends that I had there. Uh, and that rotating cast of friends was built up largely because from like spending a lot of time there on a regular basis over a long period of time, none of which yeah. I have the time to do. I now. would say, <laughs> yeah. I would say that's true for me in the arcade too. And my rotating cast of fran- friends was Ryu, Zangief, <laughs> Kyle, Blanca, E Honda, <laughs> Vega, and Bison. Sagat, and Bison. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have time for that. Like you, you really are like optimizing for. I notice this too when it comes to like watching like movies, like taking a chance on a movie. Whereas you know, ten years ago, I would have been like, I'll watch anything. Now I have this like mm-hmm. anxiety where I'm like, all right, I've got, I've got a window of two and a half hours. I got to use this time wisely. Do I, do I really want to risk this time on a thing that might not pan out? Or do I want to watch a thing that is a known winner? So now you know why you, uh, when you make TV recommendations to me, like they, it may slip by years and it is imagine cutting that yeah. in half now and saying, the kids are asleep. We have like 50 yeah. minutes for media yeah. consumption before it's time to go to bed. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, but have I steered you wrong yet? You have not. <laughs> I think Man, I think long I and hard about these recommendations because I know I'm not I'm not just throwing like any any TV show that's like half worth watching your way. You're getting the best of the best. I'm applying every filter I've got for the Brandon Hayes recommendations. I'm looking out for you and your wife. Yeah. Okay. So I want you to tell me about one thing, if you can briefly, before we wrap up here. And it, it it's one game in specific that you were talking to me before the call oh. about, uh, that had an impact yes. on you as an adult. Okay. So this this game is called Bloodborne. It you you would probably know it by it's like more popular franchise sibling which is dark souls which is like this thing that took over the gaming world and is like a phenomenon bloodborne it just so happens to be the first one that i got into um but i also love dark souls i went on to play the dark souls games but bloodborne okay so to set the stage bloodborne is a game that is just fucking hard as hell (laughs) it is so hard and it is so scary and and intense uh, in terms of just the the setting the way it looks uh i played it when we knew each other and i remember like texting you like when i was like deep in the throes of like just this game is all i want to do uh i would send you pictures of it periodically and i remember one time you were just like nice nightmare fuel because it's just like it's like <laughs> this gothic horror like just like the, if there's nothing cartoony or or like kitschy about it. It's just like, what if gothic horror about real life? And so everything is terrible. 
And mechanically, it's just a very unforgiving game. It's really, really hard. You have this like currency that serves both as money and as experience. And so like think about that for a second. Like you have like you have a hundred units of this thing. You can either use that to make yourself stronger, which you are desperate for because this game is so hard. Or you or can use buy it to buy a stick like, potions, to feed something with. Which you need because this game okay. is so hard. And if you die, you lose all of it. It gets left where your body is. And so and you have one chance to get to it. And pick it back up. And if you die on the way to pick it back up, you lose it for good. And it's just gone. Why is this game so mean? It's so mean. Um, and so, like, I, I bought this game uh, when it first came out. And I, I was like, oh, man, I don't know. This, like, this looks really hard. It looks like a lot. It's a lot more intense than I want out of a video game. But it looks cool. I really like the style of it. Um, this, like, gothic horror thing looks neat. I'm going to try it. And I, like, I bounced off of it hard. I think I played, like three hours of it and i was like my like blood pressure cannot take this like i will just like keel over at 40 if i keep playing this game um because it is so hard and so frustrating uh and then i tried it again like a year later same thing happened i just like gave up on it sold the game i think fast forward to several years later you and i are working together at a startup that was grueling uh a particularly like rough Mm -hmm. startup experience and and this was at the time that I discovered uh, Let's Plays, which are kind of like your your speed run thing, uh, except like you know yeah. slower. It's like I'm gonna I'm gonna play yeah, through this game. Uh, I found this YouTuber called Christopher Odd, who very much like how you presented the speed runs. He's like one of the few Let's Play people I found who is like not gross in the slightest. Uh, like there's, you know, there's no like weird misogynistic jokes or like, I, I'm going to be like, I'm going to curse all the time or be, do things for shock value. He's like this just seemingly super nice guy who plays through games. And importantly, he plays through them in like 30 to 40 minute installments. Uh, so it's not like I'm going to upload this 28 hour long video of, me playing an entire game. It's like I have a YouTube playlist for every game I play, and it's like 30-minute long videos. So they're really easy to watch in pieces and pick up where you left off. And I was like, I'm never going to play Bloodborne. I bounced off that game so many times. I'll just watch this guy play it because I still am really curious about the setting. And uh, I watched him play, like, I don't know. I watched, like, 10 episodes of it. I watched him kind of, like, play through the opening, and I was like, man doesn't look so hard like it looks hard but like it's totally possible watching this guy do it like i remember all of the places that he's in and i remember how hard it seemed at the time but watching this guy do it it's it's totally possible and so i was like okay i'm gonna do it i went and bought the game again started playing it it was just as hard and miserable as i remembered and i had this like so this is like while like things were terrible at work and like stuff it was very easy for stuff to pile up and seem just insurmountable. And so then I was going home playing this game where stuff piled up and it seemed insurmountable. And I had this moment where I was like, I had up to that point, I had always played games just like on the TV speakers. For some reason, it occurred to me while I was playing this game, because the other thing, the other reason people like it so much, like it's not just like it's unfair and, and brutal. It's that like, if you if you actually like kind of learn how to play the game and get good at it, it suddenly it suddenly stops being that hard. People always describe it as like tough but fair. Uh, that like it is hard. It's really unforgiving. But if you kind of like learn the rules of the game, you suddenly can go like full, you know, Neo in the Matrix and just like get through it. And so I was like, okay, I want to figure this out. Like I want to get to that point. I'm gonna put headphones on. Because I like because like this game is so fast paced, I can't I can't track everything that's going on. And if I just like put headphones on, I can hear what direction things are coming from. And you're now you're now like you're also getting rid of external distractions. You're not in the world. You're in the game. You're like fully immersed. However, the problem is because this game is still fucking terrifying, putting on headphones (laughs) means that I am now immersed in like the and like 
all of these awful noises and creepy sounds that mm-hmm. I didn't even hear before. And like, there's like one part early on where you go into this house that's like dark and there's like two people upstairs that are like hidden and waiting for you. And I just knew that they were there, but I had never heard them. And then I put the headphones on and walked in and I heard like one voice just go like, oh, we're going to eat him or something like that. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, And I like took the headphones off and I was like, "Okay, I don't think I can do this. And I tried to go back and I was like, no, it's not the same. And so I had this moment where I was like, all right, we're doing we're doing the headphones. I'm just going to like get through this. And so like from that point on, it turned into this mental exercise of of like separating the anxiety and intensity of of the 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 very real but ultimately inconsequential stakes of the game which were that like uh oh if i die i lose all of my experience that is like that is scary i have this incredibly strong resistance to wanting to to like to that happening so much so that i'm like panicking when i think i might die which is then actually causing me to die and have the thing that i was so afraid of happen and it turned into this like cycle of just like it was like immersion therapy of like I eventually like I beat I've I've like beaten that game three times now and I eventually like it became this like mental exercise of like stepping back and separating like you know what was actually happening and what was important from from like what the setting and the immersion like made me feel. Um, which is that, you know, like, yes, I may lose all of these, these like experience things, but you can always get more. The game's not over. You don't have to stop playing. It's not an irreparable blow. It's just a, a minor annoyance. Once you like, once you, once you stop fearing losing them so much, you realize it's actually not that big a deal. You realize that like, oh, if I die, uh, over and over and over, it's fine. Like I can just figure this out. Uh, and then once you once you like start to calm down, then you start in the cycle of like, oh, I'm actually getting better at this. This thing that kicked my ass two hours ago, I'm now like sailing through, partially because I know it, and partially because I'm much calmer than I was before. And it ended up dovetailing so nicely with my experience at the company we were working at, and just like that part of my career in general, because I basically had to do the same thing at work. Which was like to really draw, very consciously draw a line between like what the mythologizing nature of a startup workplace wants you to believe about the stakes that you're dealing with. Um, you know, they want you like they create this world where it's like life or death and you're moving heaven and earth to build, you know, Yelp for dogs or whatever. And so, like, it kind of, like, it gave me, it, 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 like, built the muscle memory to, like, step back and go, this isn't that important. Like, I get what you're saying. I hear you. But if I actually, like, abstract away the specifics of, you know, like, what about this makes it seem scary and I just look at the facts, it's like, oh, I, I, I see how this works. This is fine. Like, th- this can go wrong and it's actually fine. Um, I'm not going to single-handedly, like, ruin the company. Or, you know, whatever else. And it was like, man, it was this, it changed the way that I both approached like work and also video games from that point on. Like now I, like I've gone on to play all the Dark Souls games. I fucking love hard games now. Like it is, it is the thing I prefer is like games that are just incredibly challenging. Um, And sometimes I like nice, easy, comforting games. Like I'm not, it's not like it's all that all the time. But whereas before I would just kind of like, Go like, ah, oh, that looks cool, but looks like too much for me. Now I'm just like, oh yeah, that's the thing. I can't wait to dig into that. I, I will go like rushing toward it instead of kind of like hesitantly backing away from it. Hmm. That's deep. Like the idea that uh, letting go the fear of losing something because the stakes feel so high that you're not allowed to let this thing drop. And then realizing the stakes are very rarely as high as it feels like. And people that deal in literal life and death learn how to deal with the fact that it's going to drop sometime. People die. Like, you know, doctors and stuff like survive by learning that this is, this is, they, they get to wake up the next morning and do better the next day. That, you know, and, and, you know, us in startup land are meant to like take our work more seriously than that. 
you know, and completely throw ourselves on the, the bed of spikes if we don't uh, accomplish this thing because, uh, you know, a, an important uh, client is waiting for some, you know, some piece of work from us that was overpromised and we've got to move heaven and earth to make it happen. So uh, that's a, a weird lesson to learn from a video game, yeah. but that's uh, that's pretty cool that you did. You should play Dark Souls. No, you shouldn't. You would. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to do yeah. that. That's not a thing I'm going to do. What I am going to do is a bunch of Nintendo Labo, uh, which I find to be very therapeutic. You were talking earlier about basically the gaming equivalent of like the mental picture I had is like the gaming equivalent when you're talking about putting together these sets like of building IKEA yeah. furniture. But if you find that therapeutic, I highly recommend Nintendo Labo. It's a lot of fun to build and less fun to play. <laughs> it says it right on the box. <laughs> Wait, really? So that one, that's my final. My I would, final I would actually buy that. that from Nintendo. It is. They are marginally fun games to play with things that are really fun to build. Uh, and honestly, genuinely a, a lot of fun. I find it like a therapeutic exercise to do. So that's my final recommendation. Uh, lots to think about. Uh, I don't know. That wound up being a yeah. fun conversation. Maybe next time we'll be, you know, more riled up about something. But thanks, people who make games. We hope that you guys unionize so that your lives yep. get better. Yep. Okay. Well, for uh, all of us in Studio QB7, <laughs> I was trying to do like the Dateline oh. sign off. So, yes, for everybody listening, thank you so much. Uh, we hope you had a little bit of fun talking about games uh, like we do watching them be played on YouTube and used to play them. If you would like to get in touch with us, we are at Copy Paste Pod on Please Twitter. tweet us about games. I am Teb. Yes. Tell us your favorite games, actually. I would love game recommendations. So now you know our preferences. So if you have game recommendations for things that I think Brandon might like this game, give this a shot. Uh, I will literally buy a fucking game. If you recommend a game that you're sure that I will like and I hear about it more than once from more than one person, I will buy it. And then I will take a picture of myself playing it and I will put it I will put it on my Instagram, which nobody should follow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I am Tev Viking on Twitter. Chris, you are? I am 15 letter max. All of the letters and maxes. So we love to hear from you. We, we'd love to uh, talk with you on the internet. And we would love to see you again next time. Uh, feel free to tell your friends. Rate us. Review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And we will see you again next week. Bye, everybody.